Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to verse 20. The seventeenth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on February 8, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 7, Translation, Installment 4, accompanies this talk. Okay, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're about to finish chapter 6. I'm going to try to complete chapter 6 tonight. I'll do my best. We looked at the first part of chapter 6 last week, and I want to finish that, and then we'll go on and, and look at the last half, which I think will go relatively quickly. I'm going to start at 5.11 and read the part that we looked at last week and into the first part of the new section, the very last part of 5 and 6. Concerning this, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey, and remember that this is how Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning this, our explanation will be lengthy and difficult to convey because you've become unresponsive to God's messages. Now indeed, because of the amount of time you have followed Jesus, though you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you again the elements of the beginning of God's revelations. Indeed, you have become those who have need of milk and not of solid food. Now everyone who is a partaker of the milk is not conversant in the matter of dikaiosune. Indeed, he is an infant, and the solid food is for the mature, for those who, as a matter of habit, have senses that have been trained for the discernment of good and bad. Therefore, leaving behind the account that constitutes the beginning of an understanding of the Messiah, let us press on to completeness in our understanding of him, not again laying a foundation of repentance from death-causing deeds and of belief in God, a foundation of instruction about ritual washings and about the laying on of hands and about the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. And this we will do if God permits. Now with regard to those who have once been enlightened, to be specific, those who have experienced the gift from heaven and have been made to be sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit, even those who have experienced the wonderful pronouncement of God and the accompanying supernatural confirmatory signs with regard to the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance insofar as they again, in their own right, choose to make a public example of the Son of God by crucifying him. Now land that drinks the rain that often comes upon it and gives birth to pasture useful to those for whom it is in fact being cultivated this land receives a blessing from God. But if the land bears thorns and thistles, it is disapproved and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Okay, I'll stop there for now. We looked at most of that last week, and basically, in a nutshell, what he's getting at is he wants to start exegeting Psalm 110, and he, he wants to do a very detailed exegesis of Psalm 110. But he makes this little interlude here to say, the problem is it's going to be hard to explain to you in a way that's going to convince you what it is that Psalm 110 implies about the Messiah. And the reason is because you've become unresponsive to the truths that God teaches. 
And he sees it as a moral and spiritual issue, potentially at least, a moral and spiritual issue. Because of your unwillingness to face and confront and embrace the truth, you've done a number on yourself. You've made yourself dense. You've made yourself slow. You've made yourself obtuse. And because that's a common human reaction, when we don't want to know the truth, we make ourselves not understand the truth, giving ourselves an excuse. Can't blame me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I think that's a very common mechanism. Well, Paul says, I'm afraid you're doing that to yourself. You don't want to know the truth. You don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. You don't want to embrace the gospel. So you've made yourself obtuse. And how am I going to explain to people who are obtuse what's going on in Psalm 110 and how it implies that Jesus fits the bill for who the Messiah is? So I'm concerned about you. And so the next section is right on the heels of that then. Now, with regard to those who have once been enlightened, to be specific, those who have experienced the gift from heaven and have been made to be sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit, over those who have experienced the wonderful pronouncement of God and the accompanying supernatural confirmatory signs with regard to the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance insofar as they again in their own right choose to make a public example of the Son of God by crucifying him. Now, on the one hand, this is a fairly familiar passage to many of us, although not in this language, not in this translation, but this passage is familiar. Any of you who have a Baptist background like I do, you know that we always go here, or are always forced to go here, because our favorite doctrine as Baptist was, once saved, always saved. Once you have become a believer, once you have been born again, once the Spirit of God has given birth to you as a child of God, there's no going back. Nothing can strip you of your eternal life and your salvation once you have gone over that threshold and become a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus. The opponents of that doctrine come along and say, yeah, well, what about this? What about this? These people who were there and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So we always had to face into this passage to try to deal with it. And the other reason that's very common is it scares the hell out of you. It's impossible to restore again to salvation those people who once they have been, as we tend to read it, once we have been saved, once we have become Christians, and then have fallen away, then there's no second chance. There's no going back. It's the way it sounds. That's the way it reads. And so if you don't believe that, then you have to kind of come up with a way of understanding how this passage doesn't mean that. Or if you do believe that it means that, then you have to come to terms with your fear, the fear that that generates. Well, most of what we have to talk about this, I'm going to argue, is kind of ill-founded and beside the point and not really getting what Paul is talking about here. We have to put it in the context. Why is he saying this? To whom is he saying this? What is this all about? So remember the context. Remember the background. The background is first century ethnically Jewish people who have heard and confronted the claims of the gospel, the claims of Jesus Christ being the Messiah and the gospel that is implied by that. They have confronted that. They have embraced it. They have said, I believe that. I think that's true. And they have begun living their life in the light of that being true. And what has it gotten them? Nothing but grief and sorrow. 
They've been beat up, they've been imprisoned, they've been killed, they've been ripped off, they've been marginalized in society. So they're growing weary of this following Jesus thing because this following Jesus thing has not paid off for them. It has created a great deal of loss in their lives. And because it's created a great deal of loss in their lives, their unresolved intellectual and theological issues, namely, how can Jesus be the Messiah if he was an ordinary mortal human being who got crucified by the Romans, the enemies of God? That's not the Messiah that we expected. And so I was premature to believe that this Jesus was the Messiah. I'm rethinking that. I'm not thinking that he is. And they're backing off of their confession. They're backing off of their belief and beginning to gravitate back toward the ancestral religion of Judaism that they were raised in. So when Paul talks about having believed and then fallen away, what kind of person is he thinking of here? He has a very specific group of people in view. He has in view this group of people who have consciously made a decision to believe this new truth that's come into the world, the truth about Jesus being the Messiah, only to rethink it and back off of it later. So he doesn't have in mind our context. He doesn't have in mind the little Baptist boy who grew up in the Baptist church and who was enculturated into Christianity and never to have really confronted any of the issues, right? He's never faced the reality that he's a sinner in need of mercy. He's never faced the reality that God actually exists and that makes a difference for how you live. You can be culturally Christian without believing any of it, without really understanding any of it. And then you come into adulthood and you begin to ask yourself those questions and you don't answer those questions the way the Bible answers those questions. You don't answer those questions as if the gospel were true. So it may appear that you've been a believer and have departed, but not in the way that he's describing here. You've been a cultural Christian who never ever became existentially and personally a Christian, a believer in Jesus. So that sort of scenario is not in view by Paul here. And there are probably other scenarios we could look at that are not in view here. The scenario that's in view is the person who's confronted the gospel has ostensibly believed the gospel only to not stick with it, not persevere because of growing weary from persecution and disappointment. So with that in mind, that helps us, I think, interpret what he means by those who have experienced the gift from heaven and have been made to be sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit. That, I think, is one idea. And then the second idea, those who have experienced the wonderful pronouncement of God and the accompanying supernatural confirmatory signs with regard to the age to come is a second idea. Okay, what's the first one? On an aside, let me say something first. I remember I've studied this passage over and over again for years, and the thing that's always thrown me is, especially in our typical English translation and the way we translate it, what do any of these things that he has to say have to do with each other? And why these four, I thought they were four different things, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've experienced the wonderful word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Those are the four things that I thought we were dealing with there. And what do they have to do with each other? And of all the ways of describing what it is that you had that you fell away from, why those? Why those four things? It just seems really arbitrary. But I think it becomes evident why he says it the way he says it when we actually get on track with what he's claiming. In a nutshell, what he's claiming is two things. 
the Holy Spirit has confronted you in your life and you have heard the gospel and seen miracles that correspond to the proclamation of that gospel to confirm it. Well, that would seem to describe many of the Jewish believers in that first generation that he's writing to. They have heard the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. As we know from the book of Acts, many of them experienced the Pentecostal-type signs accompanying the proclamation of the gospel that confirmed that God was behind this message and this proclamation, that this was not some novel religion that somebody was inventing, but this is something that God was doing. So they heard the message, they had God's confirmation of that message, and they also, in that very process, what were they experiencing except the conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in them to confront them with the truth of the gospel. I think those are the two, or I don't know how to count, maybe it's three, the two or three things that he's talking about here. The Spirit of God has been working in you. Objectively, you've heard the gospel proclaimed, and the gospel message was confirmed to you by supernatural miracles that you had evidence of. Okay, let's take it apart here. To be specific, those who have experienced the gift from heaven and have been made to be sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit. If you remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples in the upper room, and he says, he tells them, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. But have no fear, he says, for I have prayed that the Father will send another parakletos that will something or other. Now my memory doesn't work. Jesus was the first parakletos. Jesus was God's first spokesman come into history to put all the pieces together and to explain the grand scheme of God's purposes through his own people, the Jews, and to the rest of the world. It's Jesus who gave us the pieces that put all that together. And he was speaking for God. He was God's parakletos that came and spoke on God's behalf. Well, he's leaving now. And you can, I understand exactly what he's saying when he says, don't fear. I mean, can you imagine being a part of that, that original band of people And you have some kind of knowledge that when Jesus is gone, you're supposed to take his message and proclaim it and interpret it to the world. You're supposed to explain it to the world. And all of a sudden, you come along one night and says, well, I'm leaving. Wait, wait. (laughs) I have some unanswered questions. Can we have a seminar first? Can we have a weekend seminar and you help me understand? I mean, I know you've been teaching us, but I'm not getting it. Could you put this together for me first? And he's saying, don't worry. Don't fear. You're not going to be abandoned and alone like an orphan. He says, I'm not going to leave you like an orphan. I have prayed that the Father send another parakletos, the spirit of truth whom the Father will send to you. So he's not leaving us alone. He's not leaving them alone. He's going to come and equip them with the understanding that they need, with the clarity of mind that they need to be able to truthfully, accurately, and fully explain the teaching of Jesus with which they have been taught. And then he goes on in that passage to talk about, and the Spirit is going to play another role. He's going to play a role in the world. And I don't fully understand this statement by Jesus. I need to work on it some more. But the Spirit is going to come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But what I do understand about that, there's a lot I don't understand about that, but what I do understand about that is the Spirit has a role to play in equipping you who are going to be my apostles to be able to be my spokesman to the world and take the gospel to the world. But the Spirit also has a role to play 
to prepare the ears of the people you're going to be talking to, to prepare their hearts to make them open and receptive to this gospel that you are going to proclaim. Well, that whole thing is considered a gift that God is giving, the pouring out of his spirit, the sending of his spirit into the world to equip his apostles and to prepare those people among mankind that God is going to call to himself to prepare them to hear and to understand is a gift from heaven. And I think that's exactly how Paul is using his language here. Those who have experienced, it's literally tasted the gift from heaven and have been made sharers in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we understand what the gift is, then I think it's easier to understand how and in what way you are a sharer of the Holy Spirit. In evangelical culture, of course, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as either in you or not in you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, well, there you go. (laughs) You're saved. You have eternal life. You're a child of God. That's all there is to it. Or if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, then tough luck. But that's not exactly the way the New Testament presents the picture. What does it mean to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit? I think in this context he means you have had the Holy Spirit confronting you and, as Jesus put it in the upper room, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit has been at work in your life to make you personally intrigued by this truth, personally interested in this truth, in a place where personally you understand the potential relevance of this gospel, this truth that the apostles are proclaiming. You are a sharer of the Holy Spirit, I think, if that is happening in your life. Well, he's looking at these ethnically Jewish believers in the first century and saying, well, that's happened to you. You have been affected by, confronted by the Spirit of God at work in you inwardly to draw you to this message of the gospel. That gift of the Holy Spirit that God sent into the world has been active in your life. And what's happened? You have tasted of the wonderful pronouncement of God. This is a different language than often gets used to describe the gospel, but I don't think there's any question but what that's what he's talking about here. The word of God is God's revelation, but the revelation that he's talking about is the revelation of the gospel message itself that came through Jesus and was introduced to us in the world through Jesus. That divine pronouncement, you confronted that. You've sampled that. You've tasted that as well. I'm troubled by the word taste. I don't think I have exactly the right, understand the right connotation of that. And it might be that I'm being faked out by our English idiom because to taste something, to sample something is to not really deal with it, or at least it seems to have those connotations for me. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying they've done business with the Spirit of God. They've done business with the proclamation of the gospel. And initially, at least, they've embraced it. But I think the wonderful pronouncement of God is basically the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, and the accompanying supernatural confirmatory signs. So it's powers, usually in most of your English translations, but oftentimes dunamis in the New Testament is specifically talking about a supernatural act of God. I think that's what he means here. These are the supernatural acts of God that he's offered in order to give evidence and signs confirming the truth of the gospel. And both the pronouncement of God and the signs pertain to the age to come. What is the gospel except the declaration of how it is that you and I 
can be granted mercy for the age to come and can be granted eternal life and an existence in the age to come rather than my life ending in death and destruction. Okay, so they've been enlightened. Enlightenment just simply being a metaphor for brought to understanding. You have been brought to a point where you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but now you've fallen away. Okay, Such people, he says, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance insofar as they again, in their own right, choose to make a public example of the Son of God by crucifying him. I don't think this is a complicated idea. I think this is a relatively simple idea. Why was Jesus crucified? It's hard to know why the Romans crucified him. They were just evil people, opportunistic and didn't want to be in Pilate didn't want to be inconvenienced and he just he just went along. But we know why the Jewish establishment of that day wanted him crucified. He was a blasphemer. That's the account where before the high priest, the high priest says, "Tell us plainly, just come on, be honest with us and come straight out. Are you the son of God?" And Jesus basically says, yes, I'm the son of God. And after all, getting all these people, bribing all these people to lie about him, they don't need any liars to testify against him. It came out of his own mouth. Yes, I'm the son of God. And he tore his robes saying, what more need of witnesses do we have? His own words condemn him. He's claiming to be the son of God. He's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be the son of God when he's not. Well, what are these people doing that he has in view here? They have come to a point where the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, they have embraced it, and now, because it's getting hard, their life is getting hard because they've embraced it, they're ready to say, no, I don't think he was the Son of God. I don't think he was the Messiah. I was wrong about that. What Paul is saying very simply is there's a logical contradiction between the gospel and crucifying Jesus. To crucify Jesus is to say he's not the Son of God, he's a blasphemer, To believe the gospel is to say he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So as long as you are joining the throng in the courtyard of Pilate saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, at least what you're doing is tantamount to that because you with them are saying, I don't think he's the real Messiah, he's an imposter. So as long as you think he's not the real Messiah and an imposter, you put yourself in the same category as the people who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's saying, as long as you're in that space, as long as you're in that frame of mind, as long as that's your perspective, it's impossible to restore you again to repentance. You've got to get past your allergy to him being the son of God because there is no salvation without getting past that. So there is no repentance for you if you won't actually confess Jesus is the Son of God because otherwise you're just like the people who had him crucified, okay? So obviously this is a very severe warning to his readers as they see their friends and neighbors in the community drifting away and forsaking their confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul is saying to them, that doesn't look good. That's not a good thing that they're doing. In all likelihood, They're walking away from God himself. Now, nothing that anything in the New Testament says is ever absolute and categorical. It's always contextual. There's always a context for it. It's always on this occasion under these circumstances. Paul is not making some kind of grand theological statement that you come to belief and then you back off of belief 
and try as God might, as much as God would love to show you mercy for having changed your mind again, he's stuck because it's impossible for people to be restored to repentance once they have fallen away. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is rather, if you cannot embrace the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, then there is, if you're rebelling against it, if you are denying it, if you are stiff-arming that claim, then there is no eternal life for you. There is no blessing for you. What you do with Jesus is a big deal, is a serious big deal. So don't walk away from him casually, is what he's saying. Let me take the next paragraph, and then I'll open it up for your questions or comments. The next paragraph is a very simple analogy. Now, land that drinks the rain that often comes upon it and gives birth to pasture useful to those for whom it is, in fact, being cultivated, this land receives a blessing from God. But if the land bears thorns and thistles, it is disapproved and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. The point he's making is, why did God send the gospel into the world? Why did God reveal it to us? Why does he confront us with it? Why does he send the apostles out to proclaim this message? God has a very distinct purpose in mind. He wants people to believe it. He's proclaiming it so that we might believe it. If it gets proclaimed and we don't believe it, then we're not much good to God. We are like a field to a farmer who needs pasture land. The rain comes on the pasture land and nothing grows. No pasture land grows. The land is of no use to the farmer. All he can do is burn it and hope he can burn... I, I, don't, know, I don't know enough about agriculture. Why would you burn a field? <laughs> It's of no use to the farmer. Likewise, if you hear the gospel that has been revealed by God and you don't believe it, you're of no use to God. Your end is to be destroyed. Your end is to be burned. And he just means destroyed there. Your end is to be destroyed. So it's a very simple analogy that reinforces his point that you don't want to be walking away from Jesus because that would be like the rain having fallen on you and you're not growing the pasture land that God is interested in, you don't want that kind of heart. You want a heart that's responsive, that's ready to produce what it is that God wants, namely belief and obedience and honor and service of God. Questions on any of that or comments on any of that? I just have a question of clarification, Jack. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, the thing that people wrestle with is that question of whether a person could be somehow put the category of a genuine Christian somehow and then stop being a genuine Christian. You described it as an evangelical perspective that either you have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit. Do you see the Bible anywhere talking about a work of the Spirit of God that is irrevocable? For instance, when Paul talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit given as a pledge, are these people who have received this gift and then fallen away, did they receive the pledge of the Holy Spirit? Or is that describing the thing that God would only do for those that he has called? And in general, then, my question would be, is the Bible, in your view, ever talking about the Spirit doing something that is only a work in those who are children of God? Or are you saying from this passage that, no, the work of the Spirit is always something that I can choose to walk away from? Well, what's irrevocable is a choice that God made before the foundation of the earth. That's irrevocable. In fact, every gift and calling of God is irrevocable. The problem is, how do I know what's going on in my experience and in my life? Has something irrevocable been given to me or not? 
And what I see that causes so much confusion in evangelicalism is we look at it and try to think that from my perspective, can I judge whether something that God is doing irrevocably has occurred here or not? To your issue about God sealing us with his spirit, yes, only those people that God has chosen before the foundation of the world are sealed by the spirit of God. But what does it look like to be sealed by the spirit of God? Is any time the spirit of God messes with you, is that being sealed by the spirit of God? No, I don't think so. And in fact, I don't know this for a fact. I'm not sure that I could demonstrate this in the scripture. But it seems reasonable to me that at one time or another, the Spirit of God messes with every individual among us, convicts us, woos us, draws us, invites us to take God seriously and take his son seriously. And mostly, mankind rejects that and walks away from it. Was that the Spirit of God doing business with them? I think so. I don't think there's any question, but that was the Spirit of God confronting them. But that's not what seals you. What seals you is when the Spirit of God is doing the work of sanctifying you. And we know that the work of sanctifying you includes the work of making you persevere through trial, tribulation to the end, which is what the whole book of Hebrews is all about. We're going to see that here in a second. We're sealed because I'm not going away. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to split on the gospel. And why am I not going to? The Spirit won't let me. The Spirit is showing the commitment of God to me by granting me the belief, the passion, the desire to know him, and the perseverance to hang in there that otherwise wouldn't be there. So yes, I'm being sealed by the Spirit of God that is sealing an irrevocable decision that God has made. But that doesn't help me evaluate myself. Whenever I have to evaluate myself, I ultimately have to evaluate myself by what I'm going to do in the long haul, not through introspection right now. Okay, what I'm going to do in the long haul? I mean, you know that I basically agree with you about what you're saying about perseverance and all that stuff, but the theme of assurance in the New Testament, isn't it based on, like Paul talking about, we boast in our tribulations because the result of it is hope? Isn't it based on looking at the work of God in the fact that I have persevered, that I have come to places where I had to seriously, personally face whether I was going to believe this and and I have continued to believe it and that sort of thing? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, we can look at my past to give me confidence about what my status is, about whether or not I have been irrevocably called to be a part of the people of God. My past experience can give me evidence that can build my confidence that I get it, I belong to God. My destiny is to be included in the people of God. The problem is that's not, it's confidence, but it's not what we crave within Christian culture. What I want to know as a Christian, what I want to know is something that not even God can change his mind about, or I want to know something that not even the future can call into question where I'm at today. And that doesn't exist in the Bible. I've talked about this before, but that passage where Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my own, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. If anybody on the planet, apart from Jesus, ought to be able to say, my destiny is eternal life and there's nothing nobody can do about it. And I can relax. I can relax. I don't need to worry because my destiny is set. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say I can relax and I don't have to worry about it. He says, 
I buffet my body and make it my own, lest after I have preached others, I myself should be disqualified. Maybe tomorrow I could make a lie out of everything I say I believe today. So I don't let myself relax in the face of the journey before me, the challenge before me, the obstacles before me. I don't relax. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean we live in fear. I think we can live in confidence. And I think Paul lived in confidence, but he did not presume. You can be confident without being presumptuous. And we, you and I, can come to a point of confidence as we look at the trials and tribulations that I endured, and there's no explanation for why I'm still here claiming to follow Jesus after all I've been through because it's a miracle. It's because God is doing this, not because I am doing this. And that gives you an incredible amount of confidence in the work of God, in what God is doing. But that's never a license to presume. Okay, so good. I don't want to presume, so I agree we shouldn't presume. Let me see if I can get my, make my question a little clearer. The confidence that we're talking about, though, I mean, to the extent that I can have confidence, and I think we can have a reasonable amount of confidence in this, it's based on, though, as you said, it seems that God has been at work. What else would explain why I faced into this and, and you know, those sorts of things? Okay, so what's the difference between God has been at work and God has given me the gift of the Holy Spirit that's being talked about here. Because there really isn't any grounds for confidence if the picture is the Spirit of God can be at work in me, open my eyes, convict me that this is the truth. I embrace it as the truth for a while. My faith is tested and the Spirit is showing me that it's true. But then somewhere along the line, that stops. That is, if the picture in Hebrews is God can make you look like a genuine believer for 50 years and put you through many trials of your faith, and then in the end you can walk away from that, then there's not really much ground for confidence. So is there a difference, I guess, is what I'm asking in your conception of the picture of what the Spirit is doing here versus the thing that I am driving my confidence in the work of the Spirit in me persevering and all that kind of stuff? Well, the difference is I don't think you have an answer to that in this passage because what Paul is looking at is people who have fallen away, right? It's not people who are afraid they might fall away. He's looking at people who are falling away. And to people who are falling away, he's saying you're falling away from life itself. You're falling away from your Lord who is the basis for the mercy that, that has been promised in the gospel. You're joining the crowd of those people who said crucify him, and those are not the people who inherit eternal life. So in that you're falling away, it doesn't really matter what you look like before. I know what you are right now, regardless of what you look like earlier, yeah, because but, you're falling away. Yes, but he meant something by the phrase when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Oh, well, I, mean, what I, I think what he meant is what Jesus was talking about in the Upper Room Discourse. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, what does that look like in the phenomena of our lives? Some of us become believers and join churches or communities of other believers, and we talk Christian talk, and we drink Christian drink, and we smoke Christian smoke, and do all the stuff Christians do, and because we have been convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so we're tantalized by this gospel message. Are we in it to stay? Apparently not, if I'm falling away. Whereas the work of the Spirit 
that not only convicts but sanctifies, that person doesn't fall away. There's no falling away on the part of that person. But that's only the Spirit knows what he's doing. We can't look at one another's lives outwardly and tell what is the ultimate divine reality that's being worked out here. Are they being convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment with certain effects? Or are they being sanctified by the Spirit of God? We only really know that we're being sanctified by the Spirit of God if we persevere. And we can come to a level of confidence that we will persevere because of my past. Through trials and tribulations, I wanted to tell Jesus to get lost, and I couldn't. But you're not suggesting that my past perseverance is just an indicator that the trend is good. That is, I seem to have done so far okay, so I probably will continue to. You would see it as I'm looking at in real-life situations where the pressure was on for me to leave. The Spirit of God seems to have been at work. And the work of the Spirit of God that I seem to be seeing in my life at that spot is a different sort of work of the Spirit of God than what he's described in Hebrews. That's right. It is that sort of sealing, got my hand on you sort of work. That's right. That's what I'm asking. Right. Can I make an infallible interpretation that that's what I have seen? No. Yeah, I'm, I'm not into infallible. Right. Yeah, exactly. I have some confusion in that first paragraph. It says to restore them again to repentance. So when it says to restore again to repentance, it sounds to me like they've already experienced repentance. Okay. And isn't repentance kind of a, in a sense, a qualifier of our state with God? Yeah, good question. Yes, but see, that's the problem with absolutizing Paul's words is we'll take something like repentance and take what is repentance at its heart? Repentance at its heart is the work of God in me turning my life around and reorienting me. I was oriented away from God, and now I'm oriented to God. I think what he means by repentance here is an appearance of reorienting yourself away from God and toward God. They had believed in Jesus. They had believed in Jesus presumably in part on the basis that Jesus died for their sins. So they seemed to have some kind of awareness of their guilt and their need for mercy, and the need for an offering on their behalf, and so on. So they have all the appearance of repentance, but it wasn't a repentance born of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God sealing them for eternity. So I think what I'm hearing is, (laughs) rather than take the words, of course, at face value, you're trying to be, this is so obvious, but wise (laughs) with with thinking more fully about what this may mean. Mm -hmm. Yes, it makes a lot of sense, and it's actually an encouraging understanding of how to think about the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant by the Bible is never speaking absolutely. It's always speaking to a particular situation. Think about how you and I would just sort of instinctively talk about someone who was in our midst who came regularly for teaching in the Bible, and they seem to really get it and to really understand it and really be excited about it and that kind of stuff. And then along comes something in their life that derails them, and they stop believing in the gospel, they stop believing in God, they think if God does exist, he's evil and shouldn't be worshipped anyway. I mean, just 180 degrees the other direction. Well, 
how might we describe that? Well, they were a Christian for 10 years, but I don't know what happened, but they're out of here now. They're gone. Well, watch my language. They were a Christian for 10 years. Were they really a Christian? Well, it depends on what I mean by that. They acted like one. They identified themselves with Christians. They showed solidarity with a Christian community. They claimed to believe it. They acted like they believed it. All that stuff is true. Well, that's what I meant by they were a Christian. But I'm not speaking from God's perspective on their destiny and what they're destined for. I'm only speaking from a sociological perspective. The phenomena that I experienced was as if they were a Christian. So I think the same thing is true here of repentance. We're not speaking from God's perspective that they repented and then fell away. We're speaking from the perspective of what appears to be true. They appeared to be people who had repented. And it, Thank you. And it says, like, they can't come back again because the fact is their choices now are clarifying the deep reality of their heart. So whether they were aware of it or not, we're pretending right. something true that isn't true. So it's not like it's just their own actions and direction has condemned them right. and has set kind of in stone, which was already there, that they're not, it wasn't real. Yeah, exactly. You point out something very profoundly important. Their decision to walk away is actually clearer than their initial decision to embrace it, I think. They know what it's going to cost now. They know things they didn't know before. They've read the fine print, and they've just said, I didn't sign up for that. I don't want that. So I think there is an added clarity, and that makes their situation after falling away more dire than it was before, I think because with their eyes wide open, they have rejected the Messiah. I wouldn't say they put it in stone, however. The Greek is ambiguous here. Notice it says, the way I translated it, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance insofar as they again, in their own right, choose to make a public example, and so on. I don't say because they in their own right have crucified him, but insofar as they have done that. And what I, I'm trying to soften it a little bit, because the Greek is ambiguous. It doesn't say because. For those of you who know Greek, it's just a participle, so it's subject to a lot of different ways of interpreting it. The question is, what would Paul say? Would Paul say, because you've done this, there is no going back? I can't imagine Paul saying that. It's a miracle that any of us believe anything, anytime, anyway. Is there any state a human being can get themselves in that God can't speak light into the darkness of their lives? I can't imagine. That's not how Paul's thinking about this. So no matter how dire my situation is, there's always the possibility that God is going to invade my life and turn the light on and I come to genuine repentance, not the faux repentance that I used to have, but genuine repentance that's for real, that seals my eternal well-being. That's always a possibility. But I think what Paul is warning them is, guys, think about what you're doing here. You are with eyes wide open, joining the people who are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and you think that's going to go well for you? That's really all he's saying. I don't think he's making any kind of categorical statement that this seals your fate for all time, once and for all, and there's no going back. He would worry that that's the case, but I don't think Paul would ever declare that to be the case. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, I'm actually thinking between two questions, but I'll try this one on. <laughs> so I wasn't here last week. I admit to only listening to half 
of last week's, but I think you were saying that the question that, that the Hebrews had is different than ours in terms of there was 50, I think you said there are 50 ways to believe in Jesus now and before they were being hurt for their belief. So that's not really the issue of us falling away at this point. Right. So I was thinking, what does it mean at this point? What would it look like in our lives now? Are you following me? What would falling away look like in our culture, in our time, in our mm -hmm. time in history? And I think it could look perhaps a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. It doesn't, that really isn't the issue today, but certainly we do have issues. And I think what occurs to me is that it kind of comes down more to the relationships that I have, both with myself and other people. And am I willing in, in my relationships when it costs me a lot to be humble or, or to admit my wrongness or mm -hmm. to keep doing that as a lifestyle when it's, I guess, again, when it's really costly? I think that what might through the ages, including these people. Right. But right. I think most piercingly true for us. Yeah, exactly. Belief in Jesus in the New Testament is a whole cluster of beliefs. It's confessing Jesus, the one who got himself crucified by the Romans, believing that he's the Messiah has all kinds of ramifications. One is my own sinfulness, my own unworthiness, the fact that I deserve destruction. I can't really believe in Jesus and not believe that. You can as a Christian quite easily, but not as a follower of the apostles in Jesus. You can't because the two are intimately connected with each other. And there are probably all kinds of different ramifications that if we took the time, we, we could pull them out. And the way that we as Christians fall away is we confront the gospel and the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. We march with them so far, and then all of a sudden, we come across something that they're teaching that we just really don't cotton to very much. We don't like it. And instead of walking away and stopping to be Christians, we just stop our ears and keep on doing Christian culture, but we don't believe it. That is, we don't believe what Jesus taught. We don't believe what the apostles taught. We don't actually believe the gospel. And one of them is what you just pointed out continuing to face into the reality of my brokenness and my unworthiness and my sinfulness in the midst of a Christian culture, many of whom are going to tell me, well, don't be so down on yourself, or don't think of yourself that way. You're not that bad, or whatever it is that they say. I mean, you have whole churches committed to telling you to stop believing you're sinners. Well, that's as antithetical to Jesus being the Messiah as anything could be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's a very important point. The way we depart is not by explicitly rejecting Jesus and saying, I don't think he's the Messiah, but we reject him being the Messiah that the apostles say he is. We reject the gospel that they proclaim, and we transform it into some other Christian message of some kind and call ourselves okay because we conform to this new message by my creation rather than the actual truth of the New Testament. I'm saying that, and I'm saying something different. Okay. So I would like to not hold everybody up, but I will talk to you about that. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you. We go through the next three paragraphs. He seems to be unpacking this very question. He even uses the term the sure and certain hope. Yeah, and he talks one about he'd be eager that you would just keep doing what you're doing the way you're treating the holy ones. And if he's bouncing off of the 
statement about, you know, the rains come down. Instead of raising pasture, it raises thistles. So the farmer comes out and just burns it. This isn't, is he talking about it all comes together in the end? Is he saying you can't know now about these people who have, quote, fallen away? It's not until the farmer comes out and looks at it and determines if it's thistles or pastures. Yeah, I don't think he is saying that, but I think he would say that if that were the question. I don't think he's even addressing that question. But if he were to address that question, I think that's exactly what he would say. Is that really in the final analysis, we have to wait to the end to find out, was this the final nail in their coffin? Or is there still repentance and salvation ahead of them? Might be. So then what is he talking about? Their eagerness and the certain uh, the hope in, in two more paragraphs. He's explaining his confidence that he suspects better things of them. Yeah. So he just gave this thing that sets everybody off here now. Mm-hmm. Well, and it says, but that doesn't apply to you. I'm confident or I'm optimistic that that doesn't apply to you. Yeah, exactly. I find the, that I share a little bit with Ron, I think, concerned having come from a different Christian background than your Baptist, rather than seeing a concern within the Christian world over too much once saved, I was raised in the almost never saved. <laughs> to have any genuine assurance or confidence was nigh unto blasphemy, because you just simply could not know until all was weighed and God took a real good look at what you've done and not done. And because of that, I find it interesting that the same Paul, and again, I think it goes with what you were saying about the context, the same author who could shake us a little bit, depending on how we read these Hebrews passages, about people who fall away and expressing his own concern about making sure that he ran the race and didn't fall away, is the same author of the last part of Romans 8. Now, I don't know in the last about four verses of Romans 8, and it's interesting that he's not even just saying, well, here's what God thinks. He he says, I, the first person, you know, in in Romans 8. And that's that incredible passage about nothing can take us away, not above, not heaven above, not an earth below. He says, I am convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right. Right. what we've been promised by, by Hebrews. <laughs> Go read that. Okay, right. Right. Because it's, it's exactly right. That's how confident as any author could be that he knows good and well that he's going to persevere and this is what God's plan is. And I think there's a great lack of that in the Christian world today. There are a lot of fearful Christians and it wouldn't wait us to have a little more dose of let's have some assurance that this is not in our hands. This is in God's hands, and he's going to bring to fruition what he has promised to produce. Now remember the context there in Romans 8. It's the purpose of God. In effect, what he's saying is, where is his confidence coming from? God never fails to accomplish his purposes. And so if his purpose is to save me and take me into the kingdom of God and eternal life and make me a part of the people of God, there ain't nothing going to stop him. And you're absolutely right. We have to keep that in mind at the same time. I mean, we go through all kinds of times of insecurity and doubt and so on. The thing we have to remember is this is his gig, not mine. And he, the one who's began a good work in me, will perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus and nothing's going to stop him. Nothing can stop him. So that's got to be the basis of our confidence is the sovereignty of God over all of reality 
in accomplishing his purposes in that reality. And if that includes me, not even I can prevent God from saving me. Maybe especially I can't. Yeah, especially I can't. Yeah, I'm the worst obstacle. <laughs> okay. I need to try to finish this chapter, and I'll be brief. So 25 and following. This would be chapter 6, verse 9 and following. But beloved, even if we speak in this way, we are persuaded of better things with regard to you, even of things that entail salvation. For God is not unjust so as to ignore your work and the love for his name that you displayed when you offered service to and continue to offer service to the Hagioi, the saints, the believers, the sanctified. Okay, as I was just saying to Logan, so what he immediately says is, now I've issued an incredibly sharp warning here, but I'm optimistic that that's not where you guys are at, that this doesn't apply to you. I think you're going to make it. And the reason I think you're going to make it is because the evidence that I see is the way that you have loved your fellow believers in the past. And we find out later in the book of Hebrews, he outlines some of the ways that they have done that. And it's pretty pretty heroic and pretty self-sacrificing and pretty amazing kind of love. And he's saying, I look at that, and that makes me think, back to Ron's point, that makes me think you actually are being sealed by the Spirit of God to this destiny. Now, it's not Paul's say in the final analysis but he's optimistic based on what his own experience and wisdom dictates to him. It's looking to me like you're one of those people who are going to hang in there and persevere. So he's optimistic about that. Because one of the fruit of the activity of the Spirit of God is the simpatico, the rapport, that I feel for other people who follow Jesus and love God. If I hate you for loving God, that doesn't speak well for me. If I love you for loving God then there's something going on in me that resonates with me. And it's that heart that wants to know God and love God and serve God and so on. So he says, I think I see that in you. I see evidence of that in you. So I'm optimistic that my warning was unnecessary. I think you're going to make it. But why did I write this? But we desire for each of you to be displaying the same eagerness, the eagerness with which you have already loved your fellow believer, that you keep displaying that eagerness in consequence of the complete certainty of the hope until the end, right? The fact that you did it in the past is of no consequence if you can walk away from it in the future. So I don't want you walking away from it. So I'm giving you this warning, I'm issuing you this warning so that you'll keep on keeping on and that you'll continue to follow Jesus, love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and love those who do likewise. And he says, in consequence of the complete certainty of our hope, I'll talk about that in a second, that you do that to the end. We desire that you not become unresponsive, the same word he used at the beginning of the chapter, rarely used in the New Testament. We desire that you not become obtuse, dull, dim-witted in relationship to the teaching of God because you're avoiding it and you've made yourself deliberately obtuse. We desire that you not become unresponsive, but that you be imitators of those who, in view of their belief and practice, inherit the promises. So be imitators of those people who hang in there to the bitter end, to the end of their life, continuing to believe these promises, and therefore become heirs of the blessing that has been promised to them. I think there's no question 
but what in Paul's mind, you only inherit the blessing that's been promised to you if you persevere. The one who does not persevere is not an heir to that blessing. Now he cites Abraham, and he does so for two reasons. The first one is because Abraham is somebody who, through belief and patience, inherited the promises. Now, when God made the promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater than himself by whom he could swear an oath, he swore an oath by himself and said, I will most certainly bless you and I will most certainly multiply you. And so, because he had been patient, he obtained the promise. Now, unfortunately, the style of Paul in quoting Old Testament passages is unfortunate to us in this regard. Part of the passage that's relevant to his point, he doesn't even cite. It's two or three verses earlier. Because in the passage he cites, if you go up two or three verses earlier, God comes to Abraham. This is immediately after he was willing to offer up Isaac for an offering. And the angel of the Lord, the angelos of Yahweh, comes to him and speaks to him and says, I swear by myself, and then goes ahead and makes it. So when he says he swore by himself, he's citing the passage. But the part he quotes is simply what it is that he is promising as he swears by himself. I will most certainly bless you, and I will most certainly multiply you. Well, that promise was made, I didn't count, but decades, I think, decades earlier, and reiterated a couple of times throughout the course of Abraham's life. But now he's been tested. He's been tested really severely in having, commanding him to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. He passes the test, and God now says, I swear by myself, I will most certainly bless you. I will most certainly multiply you. So notice that even in the case of Abraham, just because God declares something to be your destiny doesn't finish it. He's just declaring it to be your destiny. But you still have to persevere in being, having a heart for God in order to actually qualify for the destiny that God says you're going to have. Now, God knows you're going to have it because he knows the beginning from the end. And he can declare your destiny in advance. But that doesn't mean I can ignore what I have to do. It didn't mean that Abraham could sit back and go, okay, if you want to. I'm not interested, but if you want to do that, that's fine. Abraham had to own it. And he had to own it in a way that took God seriously and the promises of God seriously. And somehow, in a way, I'm not sure I fully understand, the testing of Isaac was related to that. Because he passed that test, God's coming along and saying, okay, this is, yeah, exactly what I told you is going to happen to you. That's, what I, that's going to happen to you. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to grant that to you. In our experience, it's kind of like what Ron and I were talking about earlier, passing trials and tribulations. You can come through a tribulation, and as much as it hurt, there's something about it that hurts good, because now you know. Now you know who you are. You are a child of God. You are one of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the earth for this destiny, and as much as you believed you were before, it's almost as if you can hear the angelos of Yahweh saying, I swear by myself, you are a child of Abraham and you're going to get his blessing. And when you hear that voice, when you know that, it is an incredible experience of assurance that brings real peace and delight and joy that you have never known before. So he says, I want you to be imitators of Abraham in that regard, that through perseverance, patience, and belief, 
you inherit the promises that have been predestined for those who belong to God and are children of Abraham. Now he explains that a little bit. Now men swear by someone greater than themselves and with them an oath offered as assurance is the end of every question. I think he's moving on to the second point that he wants to draw from Abraham now. Men swear by someone greater than themselves and with them an oath offered as assurance is the end of every question. In the same way, God desiring all the more to show to the heirs of the promise the immutable nature of what he wants guaranteed it with an oath with the result that by two immutable things on account of which it is impossible for God to lie, we who flee for safety might have strong inducement to grasp hold of the hope that lies before us. So what is he getting at here? He talks about two immutable things. What are the two immutable things? The first immutable things is God's word, God's promise. The second immutable things is God's oath. God doesn't need to swear an oath. If God says X is going to happen, X is going to happen, period. It's only we human beings who have the potential to be liars, who have a tendency to sway. No, 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 really, this time I swear, I promise, I really mean it, it's really true. We have to do that because we're such liars. God is not a liar. So all God has to say is this is the case, this is true, and it's true. But he didn't leave us with just one immutable thing. He added a second immutable thing. I swear by myself, Abraham, I am going to surely bless you and multiply you. So Paul says it got reinforced. It's all the more certain because of by two immutable things by which it is impossible for God to lie. We who flee for safety might have strong inducement to grasp hold of the hope that lays before us. What he's saying is it's the certainty of the hope that God has given us, the blessing of Abraham, eternal life, mercy at the end of my existence. Because I can count on that, that's an inducement for me to lay hold of it, to embrace it. Okay, great. I believe it, and I'm going to live my life in the light of it. If it weren't certain, it would be a crapshoot. And maybe I will, maybe I won't. Why should I? I don't know. It's a good idea. <laughs> it's a good idea for God to do this for some people. But you're not going to ground your being, ground your life, define your own existence by a promise that is not certain in the way that the promise we have is. And he's going back to, notice what he's doing is, the promise to Abraham I will surely bless you, and I will multiply you. And as again, as the passage goes on, he reiterates the point about not only am I going to bless you, Abraham, but in you, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. The promise to Abraham that is confirmed by two immutable things is a promise to you and me as well. So two immutable things have guaranteed the certainty of the hope that we're hanging our hat on. Because he said to Abraham, I swear by myself, I'm going to bless you, and in you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. He goes on to say, I'm swearing that what I told you decades ago, I really am going to do that, and I will not fail. I will not back off of that. And then finally, we have this hope, unfailing and certain, as an anchor for our personal commitments. It's literally the soul, an anchor for our soul. But I think you'll understand when I'm done why I translate it personal commitments. We have this hope, unfailing and certain, as an anchor for our personal commitments, extending into the inner precincts behind the veil where the one in the vanguard has entered on our behalf, 
namely Jesus, who has become our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek into the final age. And now he's going to leave his interlude in the next chapter and go on to give us a detailed exegesis of Psalm 110. Why on earth did David call the Messiah a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek? And he's going to argue for chapters, giving us a detailed argument for what David had in mind and what, that, what the implications of that are. So he's, this is transitional to that argument. But what is he talking about here? Well, Jesus, as the high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek, has entered behind the veil. Now, the veil he's talking about, there's several different Greek words that are used for the various veils in the tabernacle. This word is the one that's used that separates the holy of holies that houses the mercy seat. And that's the place, the compartment in the tabernacle where no one dare go except the high priest, and he only goes there once a year. That's the only access they have to the mercy seat, is the high priest going in there behind the veil once a year. Well, Jesus has entered in there, he says, and he's going to have a whole chapter and a half talking about that later in in the argument of Hebrews. What's the significance of that? He's getting us mercy. He's appealing to God to be merciful to us who are the people of God. It's the high priest making that appeal on our behalf. So the significance of him being in the place of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, significance of that is that he is the one who's secured mercy for us permanently for all time, everlastingly. He calls him the one in the vanguard. I don't think that's related to his idea about him being the priest. He's used similar language before in Hebrews. What did he mean by that? He's the one who has gone on to his blessing. He's the trailblazer because Jesus, being raised from the dead, has gone on to an immortal, eternal existence ahead of us. We one day will follow. The grave will not keep us. The grave will not hold us any more than it held him. But God raised him up from the dead and gave him immortality in advance of us. He blazed the trail. He was the forerunner, the one in the vanguard to go on into his eternal inheritance in advance. So the one in the vanguard, the one who was raised from the dead, has entered on our behalf, and that's the anchor for my soul. And I think what he's saying is, what is the basis of my confidence? Like an anchor, you throw an anchor in the ocean and it's got a line attached to it that you attach to your boat, hopefully, and not yourself. It hits the bottom and it becomes secure in the bottom, in the dirt, in the rocks, whatever. It becomes fixed there. My personal commitments, my belief in Jesus, my defining my existence, my soul, my defining my soul by my commitment to Jesus, why do I stay there? Why don't I wander? Why don't I stray? Why don't I go somewhere else to define my soul, to define my existence? Well, because Jesus is behind the veil, securing mercy for me. And there is no hope. There is no other hope for ongoing eternal existence except that. If I don't define my soul and my being and my existence by that, then I'm basically saying my very soul, my very personal identity is one day going to be destroyed and nullified and negated by death. So it's the certainty that Jesus secures for me by being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek that keeps me looking there, that keeps me focused on that to define my soul. 
that's the anchor for my soul. And that keeps me from wandering away and drifting away and going this way and that way and anywhere else. Is because, like I think it was Peter said to Jesus once, when Jesus says, are you going to go too? Where am I going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? That's what keeps us. I've kept you over time. Sorry. <laughs>